King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The word of the Lord. Do you remember that story about the first time the word Eureka was used for a brilliant discovery? It's one of those stories that you remember hearing. You kind of remember the story. It's like you heard it in middle school once. It was probably from a math teacher or a science teacher trying to illustrate this formula about physics that you didn't understand then and you certainly don't care about now. Um, Well, just to catch everybody back up, here's our plan for the morning. We're going to start with a short physics lesson from history. We're going to move on to a disembodied hand writing on a wall, and we're going to find our way to Jesus, and we're going to call it a day, okay? So that is where we're heading. As the story goes, around 250 BC, there was a king of Syracuse named Hiero, or Hero, um, who commissioned a new crown to be built for him. He handed over a pile of pure gold to his goldsmith. Goldsmith took it away for a couple weeks and came back with a beautiful crown for the king. Okay, but the king had this suspicion, or at least this question in his mind: Well, how do I know? that my goldsmith didn't just build the crown out of a lesser metal and overlay it in gold, made sure it weighed the exact same amount of the, of the stuff that I gave him, and then just pocketed the rest of my money and left. Uh, how can I test this? I mean, I could cut the crown in half and see what's inside, but what if it's real? Then I wasted a really, really good crown, right? So how do I solve this problem? Well, he handed the problem over to a famous mathematician of his day named Archimedes, all right? Now, Archimedes was sitting in his bathtub one day, and the answer to the problem struck him, and he yelled, Eureka, which is the Greek word for, I found it. I I got the answer. And so he was so excited that he found the answer, and he wanted to tell the king. He jumped out of the bathtub, ran down the street naked to report to the king, I figured out how we can solve this problem. I mean, who hasn't been there after a really good idea? What he realized sitting in the tub was the amount of water that uh, was displaced had to be exactly equal to the, to the uh, volume that his body was under the water. Okay, up till that moment, no one had ever figured out how to accurately measure the volume of strangely shaped objects. And since different metals have different densities, even though the crown weighed as much as it should, it di- if it didn't have the same volume as the original amount of gold, then they would know if it was made of a different kind of metal or not. Well, it turns out, They did the test. The king's suspicions were right. The crown displaced way too much water. Pure gold is very, very dense, and so it would be very small. Um, And when they cut it open, they revealed that the goldsmith had made the majority of the crown out of silver, overlaid it with gold, and tried to get away with the king's gold. So he tried to get a pile of gold. Instead, he lost his head. You win some, you lose some. Um, And here's the thing. Now, having learned all of that this week on Wikipedia, right, And having explained it to you, 
with such clarity and ease, I'm still not sure I understand what the physics of that formula is that I just explained to you. Uh, We'll leave that to the professionals, but here's what I do understand. Archimedes' story, okay, this story of weighing and testing uh, the integrity and the purity of a crown is exactly what our story is about in Daniel 5 today. Um, Hero's crown was measured, and it was found wanting. It, It was weighed and tested and pressed, and it was found to be insufficient. It was impure. It was a counterfeit crown that wasn't fit for a true king. Daniel 5 is about God weighing a crown. It's about God testing and pressing and prodding King Belshazzar in this case, but really it's about God measuring the purity and the integrity of, of all human power, okay? of, of all human claims to success and achievement. And when God weighs our efforts, he finds them wanting, maybe shiny on the outside, but made of something less on the inside. Now, this morning is Palm Sunday, of course, as we've seen, the beginning of Holy Week, the highest week in the Christian year, because we celebrate Jesus's crowning achievements that he won for his people, dying and rising again. All the promises of the gospel sealed and delivered to us this week. I was tempted to take a break from our series through Daniel today so we could spend the morning in a passage that really highlights the themes that this monumental day is about. But man, the more I read Daniel 5, the more I realized that its message for us is exactly what Palm Sunday is about. Today, with palm branches and Hosanna songs, we celebrate the the day that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, declaring himself to be the true king, to wear the true crown of all creation. This is Jesus' declaration day. It'll be another week until his coronation day when he dies on a cross with a crown on his head. But today was the day he announces himself as king. We, see, we read about it in John 12. There was a large crowd that had come to the feast. Uh, they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In many ways, the Bible is asking us one big central question about our lives. Who's your king? Who who is your king? Whose voice do you hear and follow instinctively and without question? Where do you look for protection and hope and security and guidance as we try to make our way through the world? I mean, do you try to find these things in success at work or success at home Is fitting in your king? Is being seen and being known your king? Is comfort and ease and the path of least resistance what sort of governs your life? Are you your own king? Who is your king? Or do you hear the claims that Jesus made on this day 2,000 years ago and your heart knows them to be true? You were designed by God to be loved by him and to serve him above all others, that your life is not your own, And that is amazingly good news, that you belong body and soul to God forever. Let me just say, whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, 
Um, whether you already believe those claims that Jesus made on your life or you're exploring them and, and pressing them and measuring them, so to speak, to see if his crown has the integrity that he claims that it does, um, this is still a live question for all of us sitting in this room. I mean, just because Christians say they, they serve and they worship God, and just because we've made that choice once, doesn't mean we don't have to make that choice again every day and really every hour of our lives to, to build our lives around um, the reign of Jesus. We all worship something. We're all citizens of a kingdom. Our actions and our words and our thoughts, they, they declare an allegiance to a king, whether we're self-aware to know what that is or not. So the question for this morning is, have you chosen the best king? I mean, do you know who you're following do you know why? Uh, like Archimedes um, and his mathematical formulas, I don't understand. Can you spot the counterfeit crowns in this world and know them to be fakes? Does your king lead you to a life full of life or a life full of empty promises, missed opportunities? I'll be really upfront with you this morning. I want to spend the rest of our time trying to show you and convince you and even beg you if I have to that the crown of Jesus is the best, okay? That the crown of Jesus is the best crown you can choose to follow because what it does is it leads to life. I want to compare the reign of old Belshazzar we just heard about in Daniel 5 to the reign of Jesus. I want to hold them up next to each other and just let the purity and the loveliness of Jesus' crown sort of speak for itself, okay? So that's the plan. So first... The first difference we see between a a human king, systems of earthly power, and King Jesus is that human power tends to and always does look down on the weak, but King Jesus seeks out and honors and lifts up the weak and the needy among us. All right, so we just uh, read the setup for our story, a bit of a cliffhanger there a minute ago. King Belshazzar, um, just to catch us up is probably the great-grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar, whose reign we've been following through the past few weeks in the book of Daniel. And he's risen to power in Babylon. And Belshazzar enjoys his power very much, but even more than his power, he enjoys being seen as the one who has the power, right? And he loves to party. So with even an enemy nation at his gates, which we'll learn about at the very end of the chapter... Uh, Belshazzar throws a small little get-together with a thousand of his closest friends, and uh, they just throw a party, right? A major party. We read they drank wine, and they worshipped the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Everyone worships something. Even kings have kings, don't they? And immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. The king saw the hand as it wrote. The king's color changed as it would, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. A disembodied hand appears and begins writing on the wall, and his knees knocked together. Now, that's probably actually a Hebrew euphemism for something else, okay? So let's just say the the king's royal undergarments aren't the same as they were before this just happened. Um, And we'll leave it at that. This is a terrifying moment. It's also a humiliating moment for the king, okay? In front of everyone, 
he does this. So the queen mother, probably his, his mom, steps in to defuse the situation and get some answers. So picking up our story in verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made of him, or made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You're that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah? I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they couldn't show me the interpretation of the matter, but I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you'll be clothed with power or purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in all the kingdom. Now, as we read this exchange, the sheer contrast between these two men just kind of jumps off the page. Um, Even after his humiliating and terrifying moment, and probably because of it, King Belshazzar comes off to Daniel as like this sneering bully, okay? He he refers to Daniel as as that Daniel, um, one of the exiles who my father brought from Judah. In other words, he's that foreigner, right? The one who doesn't belong here, the one who whose nation lost, he's that, he's that loser. There, there are racist undertones here. Um, there's clearly a power play to position himself as the winner in history and Daniel as the loser. Um, even as he asks for help, he's posturing. He, he's looking down on Daniel. Belshazzar parrots the language of his mom and tries to buy the spiritual services of a man who's better than himself. Uh, Belshazzar is the guy who uses his position of power to belittle those around him. He, he sees an, op- an opening to leverage and manipulate someone to get what he wants, and he takes it every time. Okay? Life for him is a zero-sum game. If I win, you lose. If you win, I lose. Power is to be consolidated. It's not for generosity. It's not to give away for free, certainly. This is the way counterfeit kings in this world always operate. And and it wouldn't take any of us very long to come up with example after example of people like this we know who act this way in the world. I mean, of course, it's the dictators seizing power through violence, but much closer to home, it's also the gossip that belittles other people to make us feel big just for a moment right? It's, it's the sexual conquest without the relationship of love and commitments and trust, just using people to get what we want. It's, um, it's not even noticing the hardships of our neighbors because we were born into a different position of privilege, and we've never had to worry about the sorts of things that our neighbors sometimes have to worry about, and it's all cut from the same cloth, 
We're all victims and we're all victimizers of this dark side of human power. Daniel, on the other hand, belongs to another world altogether, okay? Verse 11, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. They noticed the Holy Spirit in Daniel without even having a concept of the Trinity yet. She could tell this man was made of different stuff altogether. There there was an energy or a driving force about his life that made him stand out. He was made of different stuff. He was a citizen of a different kingdom. And though Daniel was standing alone in that room, surrounded by hostility and arrogance and racism and danger, he used his power given by God, not to belittle the king, not to mock him, not to be sarcastic, but, but to serve him, right, to guide him, and even like he did for his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, to hope for him, to work for his good. What Daniel, or here's a question, what did Daniel know deep in his bones that allowed him to flourish in a place like that, even in the presence of King Belshazzar? He knew, Daniel knew, that the king he served unlike Belshazzar, was a king who didn't mock the weak and, and, um, and afraid and lonely. But as the psalmist tells us, he's a king who inclines his ear to those who need him, right? Have you ever felt weak or overwhelmed by life? Have you ever? Do you right now feel weak or overwhelmed by life? What about worn out? What about out of place, Right? What about you you feel like the outsider looking in on what the insiders are all doing? What about lonely? What about afraid? King Jesus has a disposition towards the small and the weak and the needy in this world. I mean, he is the one who said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, who are sad. Blessed are the meek and the weak for they're the ones who are going to inherit my kingdom. I mean, what king has ever said that before? The weakest among you are the ones who get to inherit my kingdom. We all know Belshazzars, right? We all know the bully. We all know those who abuse power. We all have a little Belshazzar inside of us, don't we? That little guy wants to get out all the time. Um, But do you know the comfort and the grace of serving a king who serves you first? Uh, of looking to someone stronger than you who inclines his ear to those who need him, who welcomes your hurt, doesn't manipulate it, who seizes opportunities to invest in your character, not leverage your mistakes against you for himself. It is good to be small in God's kingdom. Okay. Second, Jesus is a king who doesn't just give good information but offers life-changing transformation, all right? So Daniel has arrived in the king's court. He's been asked to help in a sneering, mocking way, and here's his reply, verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. But before he does that, this is interesting, he says he'll help him interpret it, but before he does that, he's taking this chance to give this king a lesson, okay? This is Daniel guiding the king, hoping for him. He doesn't have to do this. It's a risk for him, but he goes out on a limb to actually guide the king. O king, the most high God, uh, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. 
Because of the greatness that he gave him, all people, nations, languages, trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Win some, you lose some. Who he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. His glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. This is the passage, the episode we looked at last week when we saw that sin living outside of God's reality is it's actually insane. Okay, It's a crazy way to live. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Okay, you knew all this, but you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, the vessels of his house. You've been brought in, have been brought in before you. You and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, of of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath. And, in, and whose are all of your ways you have not honored. Daniel responds to the king, and he basically says, you had all the information you needed, okay? You should have known better. You had all the information you needed to avoid what was happening to you, but you didn't have the power of transformation to do anything about it. Okay, you saw your granddaddy. You saw him roaming around on the fields like an ox eating grass with long hair and claws. Okay, you saw what living outside of God's will and his reality does to a person. You knew everything you needed to know, but you knew the truth, but you couldn't change your own heart, right? You didn't have the power to transform your own life. And isn't that how it always works in the world apart from God? I mean, our world loves information, Okay, we love data. Big data right now is big business. So every Microsoft commercial that you see on TV says the exact same thing. This is Microsoft's gospel to you. Okay, there is a whole world of information out there that you could have access to, but you don't know what to do with it because the data is too big. We can help you with that. Aren't you lucky? If you buy the right systems and the right computers and the right cloud, we can manage your data and we can give you the edge in your market, in your field, in your corner of business. You can dominate. Your salvation is going to come through better information. Okay? And the Bible says, no, it's not. And history says, no, it's not. Um, there was a young man named Andrew Carnegie. You guys know him as the, as the great steel tycoon of the 20th century, one of the wealthiest men to ever live in American history. But when he was still a young man at the age of 33, he wrote this in his journal. Okay, check this out. Man must have an idol. Okay, that's what the sermon is. Everyone's going to worship something. Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. Andrew Carnegie. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at the age of 35. He was 33 when he wrote that. You know when he hung up the cleats? 65, just like the rest of us. Uh, He saw with clarity what money was doing to his heart. He knew the truth. He had the information but he didn't have the power to stop. 
He didn't have the power to change the trajectory of his life because information is not enough for salvation. We need a power from outside of ourselves to bring transformation. Paul writes in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that King Jesus reigns and has offered to bring us into his family, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He writes elsewhere, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you want to change anything about your life, like really, like the deep heart kind of transformative change that actually moves us in a new direction in the world, um, you're going to need more than the right information. You're going to need a power to come in from the outside and change you from the inside. The love of King Jesus is the power to become what we cannot become on our own. Even if we know what it is we're designed for, no information or education or self-advancement program the kingdoms of this world offer can go deep enough to transform our lives, but Jesus can. He's the only king inclined to the weak. He's the only king with the power to truly change our lives. And lastly, he's the only king who brings deep unity instead of division. Last few verses of our chapter, picking up in verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand, we're back to the disembodied hand writing on the wall, okay, eerie. Uh, The hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Again, this is Daniel speaking to the king. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar, true to his word, gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. A proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Many, many, tekel parson. Try to say it a few times fast. Many, many, tekel parson. It's Aramaic for numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. God is testing this crown. He is pressing it, and he is saying it was weighed in the balances, and it was found wanting. Okay, it wasn't going to last. This was the writing on the wall for Belshazzar, and this is the writing on the wall for all the crowns in this world that we're tempted to worship and follow and devote our lives to. A crown weighed in the balance and found wanting. A kingdom that started the day in one piece and is going to end the day divided, pulled apart by more kings and more kings after that. All these crowns will one day fall apart. In this world, on this side of heaven, all of our efforts, even our bodies, our relationships, our dreams, they are naturally going to drift apart, fall apart, sometimes be pulled apart, aren't they? This world slowly or quickly divides what was united, but the whole reason Jesus came into this world and the whole reason that we celebrate this week with Easter Sunday and Good Friday coming up is because it is his sole mission to unite again what was divided, to bring together what should be together. 
Jesus unites people back to himself, adopted into the family of God through his cross. And then he unites them to one another, connected to the family of God through his church. All right? Right here, the unity of God's kingdom is on display. I had a professor in seminary who, who wrote this, the, the church itself is not made up of natural friends, okay? It's made up of natural enemies, he says. What binds us together isn't common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationalities, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together because they've been saved by Jesus and owe him a common allegiance, and they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. See, we have an opportunity here at Grace Church to be a witness of the reign of Jesus' love in the world and his plan for the world in the way that we treat one another in our differences and even in our conflicts. If you're a Christian, the truest thing about you cannot be your education level. It cannot be your theological convictions. It cannot be your business interests or your politics. All of that matters, for sure. But the truth about every single Christian is our common identity in our king, who has an ear for the weak and who has healed needy sinners, and we share an identity that deep and that foundational and that good, any wound can be healed, right? Any division can be united. God will gather his global family together from every tribe, every nation, every language, every people one day. But until that day, we actually get the chance to worship our king by living out this unity in small ways with one another until he comes again. So keep an eye out for him, okay? Keep an eye out for little ways that we can be united amidst the diversity of our congregation because it's a sign and a fruit that we're living in the kingdom of God and that we're his citizens. The crown of Jesus is the crown of life. Pure goodness all the way through. Nothing counterfeit about it. Nothing, um, nothing lesser about it. Worship him, follow him, and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for this passage. Thank you for the um, life of Daniel and um, the life of Belshazzar. Thanks for the warning that you've given us in that passage. We do pray, God, that you would help us see the beauty and the purity and the loveliness of your crown. You're our king. Help us worship you and follow you. Help us devote our lives to you. And I do pray that that trickles down into all of the relationships that we have with one another. It trickles down into the way we think about work and family and the way we dream and hope for our time in this world. Guide us, King, and help us love you. Amen.